even your first Oculus Rift experience, you might notice the pixels at first, but you remember being somewhere. You know, I think it's so underestimated. A lot of the early sound chips that were used in game consoles were the same ones that were used in music keyboards. This flies in the face of traditional composition having a beginning and then a development that culminates in a solution. Welcome to Built to Play Games and Technology for the Arts Inclined. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, we've got VR on the brain as Samsung gives games away and Sony makes some big claims. Also, Steam gets organized and Blizzard and Square Enix really like puns. Plus, we explore the world of sound. We'll track the history and design of video game sound. But first, we chat with Stefan Tangay about virtual reality and today we'll forget about the headsets strapped to our faces. Virtual reality is actually our new theme month here at Built to Play. That's right. We're doing a whole month about sitting down, covering your eyes, and entering a whole nother world. And that's something Stefan Tanguay has been a fan of since at least the mid-80s. It was actually something that I thought of as a kid. And then uh, I would say just like everyone else in the you know late 80s, early 90s, it's really exciting. Uh, the idea of VR, the idea of jumping into a virtual space, into a, a totally digital universe that doesn't exist. The reality was was disappointing, um, and I actually was an early adopter of head mounted displays back then, but they were pretty horrible, and they weren't they weren't actually at a point where they were kind of it was a compelling experience that people would want to do. Stefan is a game designer who's been working with virtual reality for a few years now. He's been giving presentations about the future of the tech and the kind of experience you can only have in VR all around Canada. So we thought we'd hit him up to give us a kind of introduction. Now you look at VR and. It's amazing. There's so many things that are in the right place. Content creation is fantastic. The fact that you can um, try experiences from the gaming industry uh, that weren't even designed for it is actually a really amazing thing uh, because you can go out and, and <laughs> jump into worlds that you've tried in a 2D experience and then you can try it in a virtual experience and you kind of see the difference and, and see how compelling it is. But first, I guess we should define what virtual reality is. Also known as VR, it's a highly immersive computer-generated experience where there's little separation between what's real and what's virtual. In short, it's when you're able to believe that you're actually in another world. Throughout the late 80s and early 90s, there's been a lot of poor attempts to bring this idea to fruition. Just check out our site. You'll see a lot of dumb ways people have attempted to create virtual reality. Once you put your two-pound in and fasten yourself into the eject seat, your jet takes off launching you into virtual airspace. Um, it was a tiny little, like, stamp of a VGA screen, so it was a little tiny square. It would be, uh, the good ones were, like, 300 by 200 um, resolution. Uh, maybe they were stereoscopic. Most of the, I would say there's no content. Um, you didn't have game engine support. Still, virtual reality stuck around as this golden future idea. We were building robots. We had flown to the moon. We're still working on jetpacks, but we'll get there. So people like Stefan were the first to get in line for the new headsets, like the Oculus Rift. And the most shocking thing about the Oculus was that it worked. How did it, uh, how did it feel the first time you put on the Oculus? Oh, it's... I mean, it definitely blew away expectations. I knew it was going to be really good. But the... the I mean, the, the huge technical things that they get past, which is like the latency and the field of view so that you never see the edge of the, the screen. Those two things, I mean... Even your first Oculus Rift experience, you might notice the pixels at first, but you remember being somewhere. And I, I would say like that's a huge difference from any type of um, medium that we've had. There's nothing that 
has really crossed that boundary where when you think back, you remember being in a place. Uh, if you think it doesn't matter, you know, you can get a, you know, 4K, 12K, whatever kind of, you know, resolution on a on a TV or just display you want. You're going to remember it as something that you saw on the wall. You're never going to have the experience of remembering being somewhere. And I think that alone is just is a huge game changer. Do you remember what demo you used on the on the first time? And was it did you have the did you buy the Oculus or was it shown to you? No, no, I bought it. I was one of the um, early adopters. I've got the DK one and DK two, and and was tracking my order number for many months before it came because I didn't have the I was a little late on ordering. So, but I definitely was in the the early group um, getting it. But uh, sorry, what was the question again? The, the, what was your first demo? Oh, first demo was was the the tech demo that comes with it. So it was a Tuscany demo, and it was great. I think the first demo that that was really great because there's a lot of really like a good sense of of space uh, in that demo. I think the demo one of the demos that I liked early on was uh, there's one called Blue Marble, and it basically it's this I would say the difference between that and and the uh, Tuscany demo is is it's a narrative type experience. So. You know, you get ejected from a, a space pod and it's kind of your last minutes before you die. But they're really beautiful and serene and they've got music that's kind of synced with it. And it's a very choreographed experience and it gives you a feeling. And that I like that demo was really compelling. Just that sense of being somewhere that I couldn't be and then having like an emotional experience on some level, even if it was just like a very early uh, attempt at something like that. It was really, really cool. But virtual reality isn't the matrix. At least right now, you can't really jack into a computer simulation and feel totally there. On top of that, not all games work in VR. Why bother to play virtual reality Tetris when it's simpler to use your phone? And even if the game works, the biggest problem might be you're tied to a computer. Literally, it's tethering you to a desk or, you know, a mouse keyboard or, or a gamepad or something. Or the, the headset has, you know, a number of wires uh, that it uses. So you're still anchored to the real world um, by those cables, um, by, you know, line of sight requirements in, in cameras. Those things kind of anchor you to the to the real world. So um, that is definitely a current limitation. And then if you look at, you know, something like uh, Samsung's doing with the Samsung gear, uh, the other side of the coin is, is, you know, once you kind of untether, you lose capabilities. So you lose position tracking, your ability to kind of like move forward and backward, stand up, sit down, that kind of stuff. The graphic fidelity is gone. I mean... Right now, VR ideally would is going to use a really amazing PC. I actually built a PC just to do VR. But once there's a need, the graphics, you know, uh, GPU manufacturers will will kind of facilitate it, and everything will kind of go in sync. And I think in a couple of years, everything will work itself out where we've got really high fidelity uh, virtual reality, and it may be tethered sometimes, maybe not tethered sometimes, depending on the type of experience. And we'll start to move into having exciting things like position tracking is, is a big one. Um, user input is also like another giant obstacle to kind of like look into, because once you get that sense of being in a space and, and being somewhere, uh, then you, you start to realize the other things that are missing, like your hands or, you know, like uh, your ability to, to kind of like lean forward and, and investigate something like by, by getting closer to it, like those sorts of things become issues as well locomotion becomes an issue so i mean i remember one of my first experiences with the rift was uh the shock of looking down and realized <laughs> i had no feet yeah yeah that's uh, definitely an, an issue that is going to be a, a difficult one to take care of right now i kind of feel like if you um if you don't have a body that that might be okay um but what you do need is is you kind of need the things that you think about to be there so you know for example i don't think about where my elbow is 
in general, but I think about where my hands are because my hands are the destination. They're kind of what I interact with the world. And I feel like having um, your hands uh, either using something like the six cent stem or uh, the leap motion controller, like those sorts of things, just having some way to see your hands will I think you can you can like kind of let go that you don't have a body at some point because if you can interact with things uh, with your hands or the position of your hands um, I think I think you can you can make that leap at that point you know in this kind of early pioneering days of VR people are trying to make things that people with the least amount of gear can try and it also means that you know, if you, for example, like if you have a sense that there's a steering wheel and you're in a cockpit, you have a natural sense that I go this direction and, you know, this steering wheel is the natural limitation for the sorts of controls. Whereas like doing natural locomotion, like just walking around, um, when you're doing that with position tracking, it works phenomenal. When you mix, you know, kind of like joysticks or kind of mouse and keyboard controls, there, there is a little bit of an awkwardness there because it, you're so close to being in a natural experience, but it's not a natural experience once you start using those sort of more traditional controls that are used in gaming. So it's it's finding that kind of balance and then kind of dealing with it. Now, there are devices that mitigate some of the problems. For instance, the weirdness of using a controller to move your body. There's already a treadmill to track your walking, plus a growing number of peripherals to monitor the rest of your body. Whether that's going to lead us to a mountain of sensors is kind of hard to say. The future of VR might actually look a little bit creepy. Stefan's optimistic that many of these problems will be solved in the next five years. A lot of the stuff you're describing is kind of like adding on additional technologies yeah. on, to, on top of this, this faceplate that you mm. end up with. There's a technology from a company called Sixth Sense, and it's called, well, it's called Sixth Sense, and there's, they have a product called the Stem, and they have another product called the Razor Hydra. The Stem is not out yet. The Razor Hydra, what it is, is it's an electromagnetic coil-based system where there's a center orb, and then there's two hand sensors the huge advantage to, to this is it detects the position in relation to like that center orb, but it actually will detect that position through your body. So even if there's a line of sight um, barrier, which is like yourself um, between you and the sensor, it keeps detecting. It's really cool. I mean, even with all the cables, you can like if you have a game where you have to face the direction you want to walk and you turn around, and you kind of um, get engrossed in the environment. Really, when you take off the headset you don't know what direction you're facing anymore because you become anchored to the environment, the virtual environment, instead of the real environment. And to me, that's really exciting. What are you most excited for when it comes to VR? The more I forget about technology and the more I think about, um, you know, remembering that experience, that's what I'm excited about. So the more the technology gets out of the way and I just feel like I'm having an experience, that's, I think, the absolute end game. Um, there'll always be room for the, the sit-down stuff. It's great. It's a huge leap forward. It's a totally different way to experience things still. But when you have the experiences where it's not something that's been retrofitted, but you're just being projected somewhere, I think that really drives me. What would be the ideal form of VR? Like, if you, you just turn on the switch, what would <laughs> the experience be? I think, well, I mean, obviously, the holodeck nailed it, man. I didn't believe these simulations could be this real. Much of it is real, sir. I mean, because there's no there's no technology limits on that. It's not based on anything even close to being um, realistic. But from an idea perspective, it's just that's is what virtual reality is about. It's about projecting you into into another space that doesn't exist. Stefan Tongay is a game designer and the host of the Virtual Reality Meetup here in Toronto. His next meeting is on October 7th. If you'd like to come on down, just search for Toronto VR on meetup.com. 
You can find him and his work at calltoaction.com. But so long as we're talking about virtual reality, there's a ton more virtual reality news on the docket. Gear VR made waves a few weeks ago. It's a partnership with Oculus to produce mobile virtual reality kits. Uh, Instead of a headset, you strap a Galaxy Note 4 into a little kit and then onto your face. It's similar to how the Oculus Rift, if not a little bit more limited. Here's the interesting bit. If you throw out the $100 to $200 this is rumored to cost for the VR shell, it looks like you might be getting a few games for free. Yeah, so... Every single game released for the Gear VR through the Oculus Home Store will be free for at least a few months in indeterminate periods. Uh, So Oculus Home, which is going to be the storefront selling these games, is launching without a payment option because Oculus wants it to launch without monetization. Basically meaning they want to give stuff away so that people are incentivized. Yes, they sort of actually, they say it's like, well, this is what we're saying right now, but really we don't have the payment stuff ready. We kind of were late on that. Oh, seriously? They actually admit they messed up. They they admitted that later on. I think it's later in the notes. It it, it happened like a couple hours ago. Fair Um, enough. These games won't be available through the regular Google Play Store either, so if you want to be there at launch, you can't make money. Like, if you want to make a game, a VR game for a phone at launch for this thing, there's no money in it. Uh, Which, I mean, I think a lot of these people kind of expected because VR is such a small market at the moment. Because you're already leaning into the group of people who said that uh, you're only who who are buying these kits. Um, It's $100 on top of what, like a $300 phone. Um, so it's going to be at least somewhere in the range of $500 in total. That's a lot of money to invest on uh, something with games to buy on top of it. I think these guys, these guys probably didn't expect much. I don't think they were expecting nothing, though. Yeah, I, here's the thing. Like, launch titles have a really huge attach rate. Uh, and make pretty, they make okay money. Not I, obviously, they're smaller app games. But the thing about this is that, like, you have somebody who paid the premium for this five hundred dollar piece of technology. They're probably willing to drop a couple more on yeah. some little games. And the thing that gets me too is, I just realized, like, you can say that now they'll at least have the exposure of, like, now everybody will download everything, and so nobody gets left behind. But the problem with that is that they won't want to pay money for the sequel to it. Right. I mean, like, it, it sets a dangerous precedent, is what you're you're yeah. kind of stuck with. It's it's kind of like uh, the situation that Netflix is stuck in right now, where they have very. I mean. To get a Netflix subscription, it's something like nine to ten bucks a month. Yeah. Um, but the costs of uh, getting those licenses and producing shows is going up, 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 especially as there's more competitors. And so those prices are just not going to stick, and it's going to be a real shock to to consumers when that thing gets up there. If you start off with games that are like a dollar or nothing, it's going to be it's going to set a precedent for what the experience is going to be like later on. Right. Um, and on the other hand, if a dev holds off on releasing anything until they can get paid, uh, interest in games might go down because, again, the the uh, you know people already introduced to the other titles. Mm-hmm. So Gear VR as a whole, you know, say, and even the interest in the thing as a whole might wane to the point where sales just wouldn't do it anymore. They yeah. feel, it feels like you're sort of stuck. Either you make no money now or you make no money later. Yeah, and I got to think, like, this is... I don't like you as you mentioned. Like this is part of the, what's going on is that they don't have the monetization kit ready yet, and it's not going to be there in time. I don't know how difficult that would be. I mean, they don't have their infrastructure. I don't even know why you can't do it through the Google Play Store. I don't know what yeah. their insistence is on using the Oculus Home system. And if they if they insist on having that kind of thing ready for launch, why not have a store ready for launch? Uh, yeah, and like, can you? That it seems like that's a more simple thing to do. Just because I mean, there's a lot of examples out there. You're not like reinventing the wheel when it comes to. Uh, Just PayPal. Yeah. People do it all the time. Like, worst comes to worst. I mean, you can make the paying a little janky. I can understand. 
I can understand why developers might want their games out for free, like on a personal <laughs> choice level. Sure, but not as a mandate. Yeah, that seems a little more tricky. Um, they say there's something like a couple months behind on where they want to be on this at this point, if I remember correctly from what they, their statement earlier today. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you if you take, took a look at the Oculus Connect, which was last weekend, <laughs> um, they've been talking about kind of like the inroads they've been making on the hardware front. But it looks, from what it sounds like, they've been kind of like a little a few steps back of where they hope to be when it comes to the software in general. Yeah, and 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 the thing that is sort of interesting with this is like this is probably great for you as a consumer if you buy this thing. Like, look at all this free VR stuff. But as a developer, this might sour your experience with Oculus. Yeah, I mean, I guess you got to like weigh the odds of this, like. Are you hoping that this just makes? I mean, it's it's the basic freemium uh, payment model where it's like you you get the thing for free and then you start charging your uh, consumers later. And there's a ton of apps on the store that you buy for free and then you get in-app purchases. Um, and I guess I mean you could make that precedent, kind of like get these games and then like maybe you get like oh customization options or additional levels. But those won't come for months down the line. Right. At which point people will stop playing these games. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, like, the the goal with those in-app purchases, those are there from day one, right? Yeah. You want that to be part of the system. I don't know. You're right. Like, it's there's not much... It's not it really feels like much. a crappy situation. No matter, like, no matter what choice you make, you're kind of stuck. Well, in so long as you're talking about VR, though, we got more on the table. Yep. Um, Sony has a new thing with Project Morpheus going on. It seems at DICE Europe this week, uh, Sony's Dave Raynard gave a keynote about Sony's basically forgotten VR experiment at this point, Project Morpheus. Yes, he called virtual reality, and specifically Project Morpheus, a disruptive technology. Uh, he's defining it as sort of what it sounds like, a piece of technology that radically shifts, you know, the way our lives go. And, like, and disrupt disrupt as a verb is such a big point of, like, jargon in the tech industry. There's a there's like a whole, I think, a, comp- a startup competition called Disrupt. There's a whole bunch of other things. The idea of disruption is what a lot of tech companies are looking to go. They want to disrupt the ecosystem. Yeah, mess up the status quo. Yeah. Uh, Raynard quoted Mary Pickford, one of the founders of United Artists, United Artists, who opposed sound in movies when it was a going concern. Her quote being, adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo. <laughs> Basically, Raynard is saying that VR is sound in movies. It's TV, it's radio, it's the next big thing. Which, I mean, I guess in terms of end results, he's probably not wrong, but right now... I don't think, and I also don't think anyone's in a situation of saying, like, yeah, let's not do VR. I'm pretty sure everyone's <laughs> saying, let's do VR. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, even us, who I think we're, we're a little more skeptical on the technology in general, <laughs> it's... Um, I, I, I see, like, listen, I don't think it'll really make any huge mechanical innovations until we get, like, really solid AI and stuff like that going. But, like, why not for the people who want it? Yeah. If you, I think I wrote a whole thing for the site. It's peripheral at this point. Like, yeah. sure, have it. It's it's like the Wii Balance Board. I mean, yeah. you, you've got to be able to make games for it. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific use technology. And in some ways, it's like it's I, it kind of feels trite to call it something like the Wii Balance Board. But in terms of, like, the way it functionally works, I mean, it's... A bigger step up than just changing your weight as the controller. Yeah. But it is, in terms of the stuff available for it, it is pretty similar. Right. I mean, sound in movies doesn't seem very apt right now because no. that's a huge deal. But it doesn't seem like it wouldn't be too far from the truth, you know, 20 years down the line. Yeah. It, well, it might be. I mean, it's so hard to say what's going to happen with VR. Sure. Like, the thing with... The thing with sound in movies is like sound added a whole new dimension to the way you could do f- cinema, right? Mm-hmm. It's you, that well, opens... the mechanics of cinema. You could invoke different things. Yeah, like all of a sudden you have music, you have sound design, you, you have, have talking. Yeah, you have dialogue. All these things suddenly like add these additional parts of the game. But really, like 
VR is tailored to a specific, it enhances a very specific experience. It's not adding, it's not universally adding this. It's not a mechanical innovation yeah. by any means. Um, though, hey, it's good to know that Sony's still working on Project Morpheus, I guess. I mean, I guess they're looking at this stuff and they want to just stay on the table. I mean, they, mm-hmm. there's Gear VR, there's, which, by the way, I think we're going to have, a, that, that's next week we're going to have an interview with one of the guys who've been working on Gear VR, so stay, stay tuned to that. But, um, like, they see all this stuff on the table and Sony wants to be show that they're a player. I don't know how much of a player they actually are, given the amount of press they've done for of Amorpheus at this point in terms of, like, if it's ever going to come out and if what the specs are like and what kind of what kind of system you can use it with. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's I don't know, it's not quite the same analogy. Right. Uh, so speaking of projects that are kind of really shifty right now, um, something's going on with Blizzard. And what's up, Daniel? So for seven years now, Blizzard has been quietly chipping away at a next-gen MMO called Titan. Uh, it was never meant to replace World of Warcraft, but we all sort of know that's what Blizzard was hoping would happen. Well, they've canceled Titan, so make your Titanfall puns now. <laughs> uh, last year, uh, Blizzard announced they were going back to the uh, drawing board to reevaluate this project, which, I mean, basically at that point, it was a game we knew nothing about. Like, right. the idea, I think there were some inclinations that it was a more sci-fi-based universe. I think they said it was, it was sort of sci-fi-y post-apocalyptic is the, what they were going for, is what they said. And I, like this, this is technically this is a weird thing to say about a project we never technically announced. I mean, there was no this got leaked to a MMO website that um, yeah, and then somebody eventually says like, oh yeah, some I think Destructoid asked him once like, oh, are you working on this thing? It's like, yeah, we call it Titan. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's it's never been formally announced as an actual project. So I, to be honest, it's not like it's not really that they canceled the game. They just had this thing in the back burner, and it's yeah. not didn't go. To be fair, well. they've never been shy about talking about it. Yeah, either. like yeah. we do for a game we know nothing about. We know a kind of weird amount about it. Yeah. Um, Morheim says the company couldn't find the fun in the game, and after reevaluating, decided it wasn't a game they should they should it was not a game they should be making, which is kind of an interesting way of putting it. Um, more he also said that Blizzard was very confident in their skill for making MMOs and set out to make the most ambitious thing imaginable, which seems like a really easy way to to kind of fall. Right. My favorite, the most interesting he said, I think, is that I wouldn't say no to doing another MMO again, but I can say that right now that's not where we want to be spending our time. Yeah, like that makes sense. Pretty savvy, I think, considering they sort of you know didn't birth the MMO by any means, but were definitely the first huge one. Well, World of Warcraft just kind of changed the the paradigm in terms of what an MMO looked like. It was it made all the quest stuff streamlined. It made made the actual world feel vast and infinite. Um, it in some ways it made the MMO more accessible than it than it ever was. Uh, the uh, this isn't also their their only project that they've kind of canceled. Um, there was Starcraft Ghost uh, about a decade ago, and before that, Warcraft Adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, Starcraft Ghost was a shooter based in the StarCraft universe that yep. was actually announced and they was like there was significant into development they just, right, they they just didn't like it they didn't like it at all yeah um, Warcraft was like a animated game I think so I don't even remember they, Blizzard doesn't cancel a lot of games basically yeah. at least not a lot that we hear about yeah so or at least because I think what happened was that Blizzard used to work on these giant projects right and now they've started like shrinking them to stuff like Hearthstone where like that game is making so much money hand over fist right but it's just a small card game it's same with Heroes of the Storm right these are these tiny little tiny games with tiny teams that are working much better for them I think they've found than anything else I've ever done I, and if you really think about it the games that I've had the most success with since uh, since World of Warcraft have been games that like they have an initial base and they just keep expanding content for so right. World of Warcraft they had all the expansions I mean Starcraft was a bit of a Starcraft the second expansion just didn't go anywhere from what I understand oh, I, I thought Starcraft was like Starcraft 2 
No, oh, oh, right, the, original StarCraft. Yeah, well, yeah. No, no, StarCraft 2, like, in the heart of a swarm. Part, were, I thought that was a three-part thing. Yeah, no, there's yeah. a third part, and apparently the second part just didn't do what do as well as people expected, mm-hmm. and the second... There's also, like, the tournament scene didn't do much with yeah. it. Um, but then there's... Uh, when it comes to this stuff, I mean, like, Hearthstone and Heroes of a Storm, those games are both... Games that you want to add cards to, games you want to add characters, slightly chi- shift the mechanics, and, but the base game is going to be the same throughout. And World of Warcraft right now is a pure profit machine, even yeah. though like it's got a pretty dwindling player base. They keep putting out expansions, and that's just pure profit. There's no work, really, that goes into it at this point. What's the new one? Uh, something of Draenor? Warlords of Draenor, yeah. right? Which actually, I think, like re- redoes all the graphics in the game for the first time since 2004. What was that? The the one they did that with uh, was the one after Burning Crusade, I think. Yeah, um, Lich King? Yeah, sorry. yeah I remember because that was the one where they added like instanced, uh, instanced uh, but they, strikes. See, they changed do. all the world, but they didn't change the character models. Yeah. So yeah. now they're changing the character models. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Years later. Um, so Titan was, quote-unquote, announced in 2007 with job postings for a next-gen next MO from Blizzard. In 2012, Rob Pardo, Blizzard's VP of Game Design, said there were over 100 people working on the project. Uh, in May 2013, VentureBeat reported that there were about 30. Uh, this marks a bit of a dark milestone for the traditional subscription-based MMO. Uh, last year, Morheim uh, told investors that Titan was unlikely to be a subscription-based game at this point. Uh, presumably, he's off a writing on the walls for MMOs, and I think that's valid. I think the yeah. last game that tried to sneak in and say, "Hey guys, want to play? Want to pay fifty bucks a month or thirty bucks a month?" Um, was uh, uh, Knights of the Old Republic. And that game did not go... Yeah, that go, tanked. Yeah, that did not go super well. I'm, oh, I mean, and even then, right, the conversation about that game was like, oh, that looks cool, but I'll play it when it goes free to play. Yeah, yeah. Because that was, was already on the wall then. If, you know, if, if somehow Final Fantasy XIV A Realm Reborn is doing really well for itself. <laughs> Which is, like, inexplicable, I think, even to Square Enix at this point. Like... There's a there's a quote from one of those guys who's like, yeah, we didn't expect it to do nearly this well. This is no, amazing. It's, it's apparently re, like it's gone. It's so good, but it's gone to the point of like paying for all the costs of the original game and the redoing the whole thing to make a Realm Reborn. Apparently, that game is like the greatest MMO ever made or something. <laughs> I don't understand how that happened. But people but, in Japan are way more willing to pay subscription models, I guess. I don't think so. They don't really have the same internet kind of because their internet costs a lot more than ours does. Does it? Yeah. Oh, but, they, but their internet's way faster. Yeah. It's oh. weird. Um, so, I mean, free-to-play is where it's at from for persistent world games from MMOs and stuff. Right. Um, and BlizzCon is two months away, so maybe we could find out something more about this thing, or maybe something will be salvaged from this thing. Uh, I can't wait for Titan cards and Hearthstone. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to Titan, Titanfall, when it comes to Titan, uh, I, I think that what's most interesting is going to be the story that comes out of this. I just really hope we get to see some kind of story out of this. So often, these projects go like go for seven, so many years... These people who are in these departments um, go through like crazy crises of trying to figure out what this game is, having moments of doubt, having moments of revelation, and then at the end of the project, just having no one to tell because their non-disclosure agreement says you can't talk about this game until you're fired and out of the game industry forever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really do hope because that's seven years of development. There's probably a ton there. I remember in 2010, he said, "Yeah, we're playing it. It's great." <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, "Well, apparently not." But well, I they, they had at least had playable builds. I bet that that version. I bet the version in 2010 looked nothing like the version they had in 2013. Definitely not. Anyway, the speaking of big shifts, um, we, Steam had a massive update this week. I mean, it's. I opened up Steam this uh, earlier this week and found out that there was a bunch of curated lists, mm-hmm. and the one that was at the top of my list was anime. The, the concept <laughs> of anime was at the top of my list, and I. Thought, I have to ask: Are there any Christine Love games on that list? There are... I, I didn't look because I was too afraid. 
like I was too deep. Maybe it was like a like an existential thing. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, I, I didn't know Steam knew this about me. I didn't know want Steam yeah, to know this about me. It's based on your purchases in Steam in your recent game time. Like I played Dishonored, man. That was I checked that game out. That was uh, I played some uh, Gunpoint. Like that's <laughs> I don't know how it, this certain determined I want anime. I mean, maybe just it saw into my heart of hearts and saw like. <laughs> well, it's onto the heart of the cards. <laughs> It's like, hey, you watched like five episodes of uh, Aldnoa Zero. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, Steam now has curated lists. Uh, There are 3,700 games on Steam with 1,300 of those coming out over the last nine months, which means it's basically impossible to find anything you're looking for. That's amazing. Um, the, um, but yeah, like for a long time, it was like, there's something like 3,700 games on Steam and 1,000 of those came out over the last nine months. I don't know. It's incredible. Like it's yep. actually incredible how the, the sheer number of games that are there, coming out on Steam You can't find now. anything you're looking for. So, and discovering smaller games was sort of what drew me to Steam in the first place. Right. And that became just untenable. You were not getting that happening. Um, as part of the update, it looks like there's going to be a whole bunch of new features now though. Yes. You have customization options and filters. So, which can let you kind of filter out games you already own games of genres you don't like games that other that your friends are also playing and uh also recommendations like for you based on your recent gameplay purchases suggestions from friends and recommendations from curators which are the new illuminati cabal of steam it's like it knows but i keep staring at the page for the last remnant every every six months and saying i hear this game wasn't so bad on the pc So curators are Steam users who recommend games. Uh, in order to become a curator, you need to start a new Steam community or be the moderator of existing one. Uh, you get you basically you list games and you get listed on the product page, which Valve hopes will help people find curators who match their own tastes. Uh, it's also like this this idea that they've been going for a while now, and in, in that they don't want to do any kind of moderation no, at all. Not even a little. So it for before we had tags, which went from like amazing tags like Walking Simulator and Worst Game. Um, <laughs> that's probably where you got the anime from. Yeah, that's that's probably it, right? Um, but yeah, no. The when it comes to those, uh, they've been trying to kind of outsource their moderation to their community, and it just seems to never step in that direction. The idea of like, hey, um, we don't ever want to do a featured list. Let's just right. do. Uh, let's just have these guys. Like you, you, lo- you read Rock Paper Shotgun sometimes. Maybe you like their games. Yeah, top curators will eventually be highlighted on the homepage based on number of followers, and presumably also if Valve likes you or you buy enough hats. Um, this is a pretty cool idea, and so I got myself thinking about what my curation list would be, okay. which would be 10 copies of Big Mother Truckers. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying your, 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 the name of your community would be Jerk Troll, and... Uh... No, the name of my community is Long Haul. <laughs> the name of my community is Peeing in a Water Bottle. <laughs> uh, see, if you were Long Haul, I could say that you were son of John Long Haul, who um, is part of the Long Haul... The long, the long history of long haul curators. <laughs> See, what's funny is that my actual curation list would would list the two games you just mentioned, which are Gunpoint and Dishonored. Oh, great! So uh, I feel like the built to play curation list would be Final Fa- various Final Fantasies, any emotional games we can get on there, Gunpoint, Dishonored, and Farming Simulator 2013. Yeah, I mean, pretty much that sounds about right. I mean, you'll be looking forward to our uh, our curation in which we hi- heartily recommend games from 2007. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So listen, Mirror's Edge is great. Yeah. <laughs> While we're talking about anime, if I can just share one story, okay. I had to drive to pick up some review games the other day. Right. And I was uh, I was running really late because I got home at seven thirty, and the place to pick them up was at well, close at eight, and it was a twenty nine minute drive to this place. And I was driving behind someone who was driving really really slowly, but I was okay with it because the license plate was Anime Sixty Nine. <laughs> Do you think you did that, like? Is that on purpose? Do you think? Do you I think, think it was, was like a birthday prank. Because uh, 
I, sometimes I, I see these license plates. Like, is that just a stroke of luck? Did this person like the, were they born with a license plate that says "Baby Rocks"? <laughs> like, you have to, you can get custom license plate, right? You so, can, but I also wonder. You think if Anime Sixty Nine was a stroke of fate? Yeah, like it's to just be like, fair, I once drove behind a red uh, a red Porsche that had the gun that they had a license plate Gundam W. <laughs> They were just big fans of Gundam Wing. I think they're big fans of the Gundam because that's all the Turnagundam Gundam logo. Yeah, that you're right. That they're is... really like uh, protagonists of color and cross-dressing scenes. <laughs> anyway, with uh, maybe we'll, we'll try something. I mean, I mean, it might be nice to have an actual curation list yeah. on our hands. Um, we'll our games will probably our list of games will probably be really outdated and like incredibly <laughs> yeah, self-referential. I think you put it that way. The hits of 2007. So, yeah. I don't know. We just we're not real big fans of whatever the new Assassin's Creed is. Uh, sorry, uh, Natalia said. You're a great talker. As we mentioned up at the top of the show, we're working on a month of virtual reality. But VR doesn't just come from a fancy headset. Virtual reality has been with us ever since we've been able to get immersed in a game's sights and sounds. Which is why this week we're talking about all things Sonic in games. That's audio waves that go into your ears, not the hedgehog. Uh, Sorry, Sonic fans. Sound and music have been a big part of video games since even before we called them video games. Back in Victorian Britain, sound was a way to separate games from gambling. These guys used all kinds of things like bellows and um, they would use um, little bells and things just to make sounds in these purely mechanical games. So they've, they've always been there. It was no great leap for video games to include sound and I think the... The second video game that was ever made had sound, so it's always been a part of games. That's Karen Collins, who studies the history of game sound at the University of Waterloo. So going back to the 1890s, when coin-operated games first came out, they were, you know, arcade consoles, big pieces of furniture that had games. At first, it was kind of precursors to what we call pinball today. Um, Quite often, they had a gambling component And one of the interesting things about them is that music was actually added as a way to combat anti-gambling laws because these things would be in an arcade that had an early film machine and early music boxes right beside it. So you would come in and you would watch a little film, then you would play a piece of music, and then you would play a game, and there was sort of one after the other. Well, when when anti-gambling laws came into place, a lot of the games actually had a gambling kind of component where you could win kind of tickets that you could cash in for something. And so these machines became illegal. And one way they got around that was to add music and say, well, it's not a gambling machine. It's a music box. And you're paying to hear a piece of music. And the game is just something that's tacked on. Even when arcades became the things with joysticks, buttons, and giant cabinets that demanded a quarter, sound was a big part of their design. You go back to Space Invaders, and what that game did is is have this interactive, you know, I hesitate to call it music, but it was kind of a music do, 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 and it would just speed up as the game progressed. So it would get harder and harder, and the music would get faster and faster. And, you know, it interacted with the player in a way that, has become sort of standard in video games today. But at the time, that was really kind of unique in that you had this idea of, you know, you're, you're not just sitting back and watching things happen on a, on a box and listening to it, but it's actually sort of feeding back uh, into what you're doing. 
And as games changed, so too did the sounds in them. We've shifted from a few beeps and boops to long orchestral soundtracks. Today, I mean, technology enables music to play back um, interactively. So instead of music just playing in one linear um, stream of music that you would hear, for instance, on your iPod or your, your CD player or whatever, that it can it can adapt to what's going on. So if you suddenly encounter an enemy, the music shifts very quickly into the enemy theme. And so the technology has enabled that to happen with, you know, almost perfect reproduction of orchestral music. And the sample libraries today are just phenomenal. So you can have something that sounds almost like a real orchestra now where, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been an impossible dream. Karen's working on a documentary about sound design and music history in games called Beep. It's a surprisingly complicated job, especially when you consider back in the Atari games, few people credited the composer, and the music was often an afterthought. You can play a lot of these old games now on emulators on a PC, but sometimes the emulators haven't been written by somebody that understands sound, and I've found that sometimes they're they're out of tune, they're they're off a little bit, and okay, so maybe they're off by a semitone. Well, is it a semitone up or a semitone down? And it, you have to go back to the original game. So it really helps to have the original to to look at, to play with. It just sounds different than it does coming out of an emulator. And it, of course, that takes a lot of money to, to get all these old games. Everybody's collecting these now. So they've gone up a lot in price. They're, you know, the consoles are broken. It's harder to find people who can fix them. Um, when it goes back to, to the arcade era, it's even harder to get hold of people that have these old games that you can go back and, and play and record and listen to. What are the complications in kind of tracking down older composers, especially those that went uncredited in kind of the early Atari and Nintendo games? It's getting easier. You know, I wrote a book that came out in 2008. And um, at that time, there was less information available online about who did this stuff. But fans have been going back and tracking down, you know, who were the people that, um, that made the music or the sound for those games. Also, social networks have opened up the opportunity to be able to contact a lot of these people, even if they've left the industry. Ten years ago, that was really difficult to do. According to Karen, a lot of people underestimate the sheer diversity of sound in games. It's a whole industry now with the same degree of complication as film sound effects and music composition, if not more so. Potentially, it's also one of the most influential forms of music today. What kind of contributions have games made to music as as a whole from, from your vantage point? You know, I think it's so underestimated. Everything from a lot of the early sound chips that were used in game consoles were the same ones that were used in music keyboards. And a lot of the technology was developed by computer and game companies rather than music companies. So, I mean, you have a technological influence there. Uh, you have um, the actual sound and aesthetic of old games. Has I mean, you, you hear sound chips in all kinds of music these days. That even if it's not a chip music song, you have people using you know chip aesthetics in their uh, their music. Um, and then you have the kind of interactive approach to. Um, to music that's kind of becoming more common now. There's been a few sort of interactive music videos and stuff out there. So I think it's, you know, it's taken a, a huge amount of influence that has, you know, has really been not looked at uh, by by anybody who's really interested in popular music yet. So 
there's a, there's a lot still to be done as far as researching all of this stuff. And one last question. Is there a composer or kind of music that you find is uh, influential but also unrelated, un- underrated? Well, I would say, you know, Peter McConnell, although he... He's maybe not underrated, but he's not as well known as some of the bigger name composers. He did the, the some of the old LucasArts games like Monkey Island. And one of my favorite music uh, soundtracks for a game, Grim Fandango. Uh, so he's probably up there as one of my people that maybe doesn't get the kind of appreciation they deserve. All right. Best of luck, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Armin. Karen Collins is the director of the film Beep and the Canada Research Chair for Game Audio at the University of Waterloo. You can find out more at gamesound.com. That's with two S's in the middle. But as long as we're talking about the history of game sound, we thought we should talk to a few sound designers and music composers. Indeed. So we mentioned the types of sounds in games have changed a lot in the last 30 years. Footsteps went from simple beeps to this. And music has changed from an electronic style to bombastic orchestras. But what if I told you, Daniel, the sound we're hearing isn't the same as the sound in the game? What do you mean? Well, think about it. The last song in the Assassin's Creed Liberation soundtrack, it has about a three and a half minute running time. But if you're playing the game, how long are you going to hear it for? It depends on what I'm playing. That's the escape theme, so it's probably going to play when I'm running away from someone. Right. So it could get cut off early, or it could go on for way longer. When we talked to Karen Collins, she said that a game's sound is fundamentally entwined with the game itself. You know, I think some music plays well outside of the game, but most of it, I think, is definitely a part of the game. And when you take it out of the game, you have to turn it into a linear piece of music. So, you you know, maybe the composer or whoever is putting the soundtrack together is making a decision as far as, okay, well, we're going to pretend like, you know, we hit the enemy there and we're going to change the music there. But you as the listener then aren't getting the visual cues to understand what's going on. And it's, you know, it's been sort of taking this modular thing and putting it together and then fixing it in that format. So it's something very different to listen to outside of the game. Which was a little crazy to think about. I mean, we bought that Assassin's Creed soundtrack and we use game music as sound beds all the time. So we approached an expert to teach us all about interactive sound. It can be formatted in a choose-your-own-adventure type of structure of branching pathways. And we think about the music's relationship with the journey that the player is experiencing by casting our ideas of what their path will be like forward and trying to extrapolate what their experience will be, the kinds of choices they'll be making, and the different branching paths that their journey can take. Then we think about how the music can be implemented so that it will best support that journey. 
That's Winifred Phillips, the composer of Assassin's Creed Liberation. As Winifred said, interactivity changes the way you have to think about music. In a game, it's not playing a track, it's playing a sample that changes based on the scenario. She's been composing music for about 10 years now, and in her work, she's used a couple methods of making music to flow between scenes, like they do in Assassin's Creed. She put a bunch of them in her book, A Composer's Guide to Game Music. It's actually how we found her. It's about creating the music in actual chunks or segments that can then be arranged and rearranged in different sequences according to what's happening in the player's journey. But other times it can be creating music that is composed in layers that can correspond with the intensity of the player's experience or the nature of the activities that the player is currently engaged in. So those are two different ways of approaching interactive music composition. And it depends on how the, uh, the gameplay flow is meant to proceed, how it's meant to be experienced, I think. One of the chapters you have in your book kind of touches on or uh, linear music and what that role, what that kind of plays in uh, a game's uh, composition. Could you talk a bit about what is linear music for those who don't quite know what that is? Uh, linear music is music that was written to exist in a certain state from the beginning to the end as it relates to the way time passes. And so it flows in a line. That's We call it linear. Uh, linear music has a power that interactive music sometimes can't in that it can create a sense of beautiful musical grammar. It can create graceful flowing sentences, if I can compare uh, music composition to the creation of prose. It, there is uh, more control over the way in which ideas build in linear music than there can be in interactive music when we don't necessarily know the, the end goal we'll be reaching in the, the end of this musical story we're telling. Uh, so linear music has a, a potency that really makes it important in, um, in game music composition. Uh, it's complementary to interactive music. They, they fit together well and support each other, I think. Now, Winifred didn't start in game music. Her job before all this was composing radio plays for National Public Radio. Which is a pretty dramatic shift in format. What were kind of some of the early lessons you kind of had to pick up that uh, more on the job that you kind of were taught from traditional music composition? Mm. Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons I needed to learn was the idea that musical progression of ideas in traditional composition doesn't really have much relationship to the way in which ideas progress for video games. Even in linear music, which one would think bears the most similarities to traditional music composition, even in that circumstance, the composition of music for an interactive medium means that the music cannot really develop with a definitive beginning, a a, a traditional middle, and a a, a firm ending. Um, all of these things are, I talk about this a bit in my book, all of these things are kind of landmarks 
in a composition that call attention to specific moments in it. And if a piece of music is designed to loop, as a lot of game music does, if it is meant to repeat so that it can accommodate the actions of the player, which can last an indeterminate length, then any specific landmark in the composition will become very blatant if it comes back. And this flies in the face of the idea of traditional composition having a beginning and then a development that culminates in a solution and a finale, an ending. Uh, so I started thinking as I began to learn about that aspect of being a video game composer, about the idea of music as a state of perpetual development and growth rather than as a, a, a grammar with very specific beginnings, middles, and ends. So that soundtrack you're listening to is kind of a retrofit. Game composers don't make music for the album. It's more of a collection of samples that fit together. Which got us thinking, what does that mean in terms of design? So we looked for a game where sound was important. Like, the game would be totally incomplete without it. Daniel, did we find it? I actually have the quote right here. Edge Online had an interview with Alex Droken-Martin in 2013. He'd finished making this indie game, Starseed Pilgrim, and said, I hadn't touched it in almost a year, and I just added these sounds that Ryan had made, and it changed the whole thing. So we brought in this particular Ryan into the studio. I'm Ryan Roth, and I'm a sound designer and composer. What we really wanted to know is how you start making a composition or a particular game sound. I mean, I think a lot of sound designers, what they do is they're they're like, hey, you know, uh, I need I need an asset list, and you know, give me an asset list or or whatever. And I'm not really I'm not really big on that approach. I think that you know, as a sound designer, you should be you're responsible for you know a lot more than just hey, you know, here's a sword swing, give me a sword swing sound, here's a jump sound, you know, whatever. Uh, I think I think sound designers like I think the you should you should play the game like the first thing you know give me the, give me the game let's play it or let's talk about the gameplay mechanics or let's talk about like you know like what is going on in this game like I don't I don't care about an asset list like you know because if you if you just go in it from like a one dimensional hey I'm gonna take a look at your your asset list and I'm gonna start cutting stuff and then you know that gets thrown in the game and then I don't know it just it it doesn't seem very very intuitive at least at least for me. Alexander Martin, who I mean, worked with you on Star Sea Pilgrim, says the game didn't really even come together without the, until they had the, you guys had the sound. Um, what makes sound so integral to that game? Would you say with a game like Star Sea Pilgrim, I mean, the mechanics are very, very important, and like the game, the game itself is is very, uh, you know, you're trying to discover things and you're trying to figure out things, but it's like, how is that? You know, that's sometimes hard. You know, if you're just like, oh, like it's almost like a brick wall. You're like, I can't figure this out. But if the game is giving you like this positive uh, sonic feedback, then you're able to keep, you're able to continue like, hey, you know, I'm I'm doing something. You know, I'm creating these like soundscapes that aren't, you know, maybe they don't have anything to do with the gameplay, but they, they keep the player sort of set on their goals to where they're, you know, hey, I need to figure out this next thing. I need to figure out this next thing. And it's not just like, I'm I'm stuck in this like slog of, of you know gameplay mechanics, right? And one of the things you you end up putting in that game was that the uh, each each block and has four notes associated with it. That's right. Yeah. Um, could you describe how that works? Okay. Yeah. So so yeah, like I was saying, I mean the the whole the piece of uh, of music in the in the background is in C major, and so uh, all of the samples that that are played in the game are based in C major. So if you place a 
whatever block, like a, I think the blue one has like a xylophone sample or something like that. It plays either C, E, G, or the octave C on top of that. So it randomly selects one of those. And we have, I think Alex did a little algorithm so it doesn't like repeat one. So it's kind of like, you know, a little bit less hitting the same notes. When you play any of those notes together, it either plays like, you know, perfect octave or, you know, a, a major third or a or perfect fifth or, or perfect fourth. And so those are really pleasing to the ear, right? If the player's doing this, they're just going to have this positive feedback no matter what's going on. So, uh, and, and the other interesting thing was there, there was this, like, dark block. And the dark block, when it spreads, it, uh, it plays the relative minor. So, and the relative minor is A minor, so it, it has no... Um, key signature either so I don't know if I'm going too much into like music theory but. no no that's that's <laughs> what I was looking for the um in like and the minor is what ends up kind of giving dark uh, the the dark stuff the the more menacing presence it's just it's a more depressing sound exactly is this um something you've tried to explore in other games that you've worked on it is yeah I actually uh, use a very similar uh technique in Sokobond uh which is this, like, you know, chemistry puzzle game. Uh, so, I mean, you start with, like, a, an, an atom, I guess, and then you try to, to bond it with with other atoms, and you create it like a molecule. I think that's... Is that the right terminology? I don't know. Essentially what happens is you bond all this stuff together. It creates this really nice harmonic stuff, and then at the end, it plays them all in sequence, like when you've completed the molecule. It's kind of a very rewarding thing. Like, you know, you're like, hey, you know, I, I remember playing those notes as I was going. Ryan says you can't really think of them as individual tracks or sounds. Each piece is a bigger part of a whole. Which has to make you think about what you're hearing in these soundtracks. Yeah, they feel more like an interpretation of the score and the raw music itself. For example, you can actually buy the Starseed Pilgrim themes, but you're going to miss the resonant sound effects mixing in with the tracks. And in Assassin's Creed Liberation, you don't get the same transitions between songs. By having this, is this is it becoming harder to then separate the audio from the whole experience of a game? Well, you know what? I actually have a really good... I have a good... Okay, I, I did a game called The Yog. Uh, mm-hmm. You've probably heard of The Yog. And I did it with, uh, with my partner, uh, Helena, Helena Heron. And uh, so we, when we uh, wrote the music, she, she had written the music you know, five years prior to the game coming out. And uh, and the music hadn't really gone anywhere, and the music hadn't be hadn't been used for anything. And I I composed the other half of the of the score. And and anyway, so the game came out, and and everybody was very happy with with uh, Helena's contributions and, and my contributions together. Now, what's what's really interesting about that is it's it's not a very dynamic, really music system the way it works in the game. But people people that played the game had had an experience with the game and while listening to the music it like it creates this like kind of you know it's it's like a whole experience right and so when when they go to listen to the music like uh, like the soundtrack that that we released um they're able to associate it with with the game now so it's almost like it's almost like they're having the experience of playing the game but they're not playing it right they're they're only listening to the music so I thought that was interesting because, like I said, out of context, like the music hadn't been used for like five years, like it was just sitting there, and and then it went in the game, and now people associate it with the Yog, and it's like, hey, you know, like that's that's interesting because it wasn't meant for for the Yog at all. So I think, so I think, you know, 
you could put it in a context and then it kind of like it adds this extra emotion you know if you're if you're listening to it not while playing the game Winifred Phillips is a game composer and the author of A Composer's Guide to Game Music from MIT Press. Ryan Roth is a composer and sound designer. You can find his work at dualryan.bandcamp.com. You'll find a link to his projects in our show notes. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armag Bali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to play was made with the help of Stefan Tongay, Karen Collins, Winifred Phillips, and Ryan Roth. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturdays. And remember, this month on our site is all about virtual reality. Daniel already has a primer up on the site. He's also taking a horrifying look into VR in the future. We actually have a whole hub to find our virtual reality-related projects, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But this week, we're taking a short break for some reviews. Yes, we'll have reviews of Super Smash Bros. for 3DS, Hyrule Warriors, and Destiny. Check our site at builttoplay.ca for more. You can also find us on Twitter at builttoplay. And I'm me personally at Flarcon. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And uh, I think Jackie Chan Adventures is an underrated show. Thank you so much for listening.